and welcome to Radio Cachimbona, the podcast where I, Yvette Borja, share with you my journey as a movement lawyer in Southern Arizona and audio archive the fierce resistance that is happening in these borderlands. This is an abolitionist and critical race theory podcast that investigates all the ways in which the law oppresses communities of color and affects communities of color. On this episode, I'm joined by my very good friend, Matt Garcia, who I went to Stanford Law School with and who's currently a legal aid lawyer in Texas. And we discuss SCOTUS's Brnovich versus Democratic National Committee Supreme Court decision. And we also go into all the ways in which our right to vote is under attack and also discuss the fact that there is a lack of an explicit right to vote in the U.S. Constitution. So I hope that you enjoyed this episode, and if you want to support the podcast, you can become a Lit Review patron. Will you, you'll get access to book club-style chats with fierce women of color over timely texts. Most recently, have been looking at Stuart Hall's second volume of Essential Essays, Identity and Diaspora. And really appreciate all of the patrons who are there in conversation with me. If you're interested in supporting but are not sure how exactly you can do so monetarily, then you can also write an Apple podcast rating and review. It really helps with visibility and we haven't had a review in a minute. So it'd be awesome if somebody could review and just share why it is that you listen to the podcast. You can also follow at on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And I hope that you all enjoy this episode. I am so excited to finally have my dear friend Matt Garcia on the podcast today to talk about the Bronovich SCOTUS decision and the implications that it had. Or what is it? Is it Bernovich? I, I think that's how it's pronounced. I add an O to it for some reason. It's a lot of consonants in a row. So. I know, and it's very jarring to me. And <laughs> I can't keep mispronouncing that dude's name. Okay. Yeah, so we're going to talk about voting rights, but before getting started, I wanted to ask, Matt, how are you doing, and what have you done for self-care lately? Uh, I'm doing pretty good. Lately, I've been going on dates with my wife. Uh, we got married a few, we got Aww. married a couple months ago, so uh, we went out to dinner on Friday night, and then last night, we had my my folks over, and we grilled in our backyard and hung out and made some cocktails. So oh that was God. pretty nice. Also hanging out with my dog, going on walks, going to the dog park always helps with my mental health. Oh, I don't think I've seen your dog. What uh, kind of dog is it? it? Well, you know, I don't really believe in, in dog breeds. I think this is, <laughs> this is like it's well, kind of I an mean... arbitrary construct. <laughs> He's a he's, yeah. he's a mix. He's a, we got a, he's a rescue. We got him at the Halotas Humane Society. Uh, oh, but cool. he's kind of like a pit bull and kind of like a blue healer. Is that a type of dog? 
Yeah, Australian cattle dog. <laughs> oh, 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 okay. <laughs> yeah, blue what? healer, I think, is the other name. I was like, that. what? He's also a healer. It's amazing. <laughs> 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 well, that's cool. Yeah, my cat Mocha is doing very well as, as the queen of this house. <laughs> I saw a tweet that was like, what does your cat think you are? Like their parent, the government, or... <laughs> 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 their handler and i think mocha thinks i'm like her butler <laughs> yeah i think that's that tends to be the attitude of cats i feel yeah i know there's all these theories about how like cats domesticated themselves they just decided that it, it would be really convenient for them to live amongst humans and be fed by humans so they just kind of like did that whereas humans domesticated dogs and so you know kind of I guess you could say bred out <laughs> characteristics of dogs that might make them like more autonomous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank okay. You. Okay. This is nothing to do with voting rights. So we have to focus on the matter at hand now. <laughs> okay. So I wanted to give the background of these cases first. Um, they were brought under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, challenging regulations on same-day voting at the precinct and early mail-in voting. And kind of the greater context of all of this is that this is a time of really serious efforts at voter disenfranchisement on the part of the GOP mm-hmm. and especially the Arizona GOP. I've been talking about that. On a previous episode, we were talking about how people lose their right to vote after a felony conviction. And so the, the issue with like same-day voting at the precinct is that voters have to go vote at their precinct that they're assigned to based on their home address. And then regarding early mail-in voting, also, dude, this is so fucking Arizona. The state makes it a crime if anyone who isn't a postal worker, a family member, household member, caregiver, or elections official to collect an early ballot, whether or not it's been completed. And these have generally been described as time, place, and manner uh, regulations of voting. And the DNC brought this challenge, alleging that these policies disproportionately affect Native, Latinx, and Black voters. So before getting more into the decision, I wanted to give the Cachimbones a background of what the Voting Rights Act is. So Matt, could you tell us what the VRA is when it was passed and why Congress enacted it? Yeah, so there's a, there's kind of a difference between what it is now after these decisions and what it was meant to be. Um, it mm-hmm. was meant to be a federal law that prohibits racial discrimination in voting, passed in 1965, passed pretty close, uh, you know, the, the, the enactment was closely tied to the, the marches from Selma to Montgomery. Mm-hmm. And uh, President oh, Johnson. Right. John yeah. Lewis was invoked. Exactly. President Johnson sent the the um, the bill over to Congress pretty uh, soon after uh, Bloody Sunday. So it was designed to both overturn laws that were um, uh, disproportionately impacting minority voters, um, state laws, and it was also designed to provide a tool to advocates to to challenge those laws in court. Um, and then you know there's a 
it, it, it proceeded to go through a long history of amendments and interpretations after that. And so the issue in this case was whether or not the two regulations that I was mentioning violate Section 2 of the VRA, and then also whether the ballot collection restriction is a violation of the 15th Amendment, because the DNC was arguing mm-hmm. that the that restriction was enacted with discriminatory intent. So can you explain what Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act is and why it's important? Yeah, so I think you have to uh, consider Section 2 in conjunction with Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. Yeah. These two were definitely meant to sort of act in tandem. So Section, so I'll start with Section 5, which is sometimes referred to as the anti-retrogression provision of the act. Basically, that required covered jurisdictions, and there was a formula within the within the legislation that determined which um, jurisdictions were covered. Um, basically, those that had low uh, voter participation when the law was passed, um, but those jurisdictions had to send in any changes uh, to voting procedures into the Department of Justice in order to get them pre-cleared to make sure that they didn't have a discriminatory impact. Um, specifically, that they didn't you know, negatively impact the opportunity of um, communities of color to vote. So that's Section 5. Section 2 um, provides uh, an implied cause of action. So it allows people to, to sue jurisdictions um, for uh, discriminatory uh, voting laws. Um, so effectively... Um, you know, allow it works in conjunction with Section Five, where Section Five demands that those jurisdictions get pre-cleared. Section Two provides mm-hmm. sort of an offensive weapon that um, allows people to challenge uh, new new voting laws. And so, Section Two is really important, also because it's the last standing protection of the VRA after Shelby County, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so in 2013, the Supreme Court decided Shelby County, and in that case, the court basically said that the the, the coverage formula that had been in place since since the initial the, the initial enactment of the law back in the 60s that that violated the equal sovereignty of the states, basically saying that the states, you know, times have changed. You can no longer rely on the old formula from oh, the 60s. Really? Uh, and if you're going to continue to make some states do this and other states not do this, then you would have to update the, the formula, presumably, uh, that you can no longer re- rely on this formula that was developed in the 60s. I remember my favorite phrase of Ginsburg's dissent was like, you don't stop using an umbrella just because the umbrella is really effective at stopping the rain from getting you wet because the whole yeah. the times have changed analysis was be, was based on how effective these regulations were in stopping new voting regulations that disenfranchise mm-hmm. people of color from coming out and so now that that has been done away with this section 2 is kind of like the last remaining part of the Voting Rights Act. And it it actually is, includes very broad sweeping language, like it bars any voting qualification, any prerequisite to voting, mm-hmm. any standard practice or procedure that results in a denial of the right to vote or an abridgment of the right to vote. So it's like not even like 
your vote, your right to vote has to be directly mm-hmm. taken away. It's enough that it was impeded upon. Yeah, for sure. And w- so one one quick note on on Section Five. So technically, Section Five is still good law, but but Shelby County invalidated the formula, which means that no, there are no covered jurisdictions anymore. So what's sort of frustrating about this is so it like weakened it till not really. I mean, what what does that mean now? So, right. So it means there is no preclearance because there are no jurisdictions that are required to obtain preclearance because there is no formula. But, I mean, theoretically, Congress could pass a new formula Mm -hmm. with updated findings and, you know, create new covered jurisdictions based on a new formula. And so what's sort of frustrating about this entire saga is that there are there are solutions. Uh, you know, even within the context of this terrible jurisprudence that the Supreme Court is issuing, there are solutions, which is Congress could act, but we're, you know, that unfortunately we're <laughs> in a situation where that's not, you know, a viable solution. Yeah, that's so depressing. Can you explain what the holding in Brnovich is then? <laughs> now I'm going to laugh every time I say that. <laughs> <laughs> so most immediately, so you, you mentioned the two uh, voting restriction laws that were passed in Arizona. So most immediately, Brnovich holds that those two laws do not violate Section 2 uh, of the Voting Rights Act. Um, and then there's you know, what, what impact this case is going to have moving forward on future uh, Section two litigation. Um, so I think the most the most obvious uh, holding is our. So so Alito goes through these guideposts that he says uh, are important in analyzing Section two uh, challenges to quote facially neutral voting laws. And so that mm-hmm. I think is the the sort of innovation or the 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 addition to the case law that, that Brnovich brings that's going to impact mm-hmm. future litigation. So to go through some of those guideposts, first one is the size of the burden on the right to vote um, that that the challenged law uh, poses. Um, then comparing the challenged law to a benchmark of 1982, sort of asking the question, well, is this like would this law have been common in 1982? And if so, that sort of leans against, in at least in the Alito's uh, uh, decision and opinion, leans against it being a violation of, of the Voting Rights Act. Third would be the size of the racial disparity created by the law, and they go into some sort of you know the dissent and the majority go back and forth mm-hmm. on the statistics here about like you know how to you know what the appropriate measurement of that racial racial disparity is. Um, and then the fourth would be the availability of other avenues to vote. Yeah. And then the fifth is the state interest. So I think that those, you know, so there's the, the, the immediate decision about, you know, the, the legality of the Arizona laws. And then there's the, the, the impact this is going to have on future cases. What did you make of the court, including the standard voting practices in 1982 as the comparison mark to determine if a voting regulation or law violates Section 2? I think just so Justice Kagan, who who wrote the dissent, I think really hit the nail on the head. She wrote that, let's see, uh, Section 2 was meant to disrupt the status quo, not to preserve it, to eradicate mm-hmm. then current discriminatory practices, not to set them in amber. And she quotes, I think in a footnote, she quotes the House report 
on the on the act and, and explains that uh, the House stated that there were numerous practices and procedures which act as continued barriers to registration and voting. So even at the time of the act's enactment, the, Congress was explicitly considering the fact that there were current voting restrictions that needed to be addressed by the legislation. And so it's it just seems like... Right. It was 1982. Are you fucking kidding me? Right. Oh, I, I forgot that it was like an amazing like racial utopia in 1982. <laughs> right. And this is this is like a classic Republican rhetorical strategy and a classic conservative legal tack, which is elevating the, mm-hmm. the importance of the past, you know, enshrining yeah. select moments in history and thereby using those moments to justify uh, the current conditions. I mean, we see this all over the place. You see this with like Trump's campaign for sure, like Make America Great Again, the 1776 project. Um, you know, all of this mm-hmm. is, is this is just their strategy to like cling to power and wealth and privilege by justifying their current position by attaching it to some previous position that is, you know, apparently unassailable. Yeah. And I mean, it was also just a strange comparison to make because there are actually a lot of differences from how we vote now to how we voted in 1982. Like most mm-hmm. most places were, did require you to vote in person in 1982. And there was only a small category of people who were allowed to vote absentee. And I just, this approach, like you're saying, is a great strategy for conservatives to maintain the status right. quo. It really greatly limits progress. I mean, it literally keeps us in 1982. <laughs> See, there's, there's another, uh, there's a funny little piece of the, the majority opinion where Alito kind of seems to, to, to foresee the upshot of this logic of tying the analysis to 1982. Yeah. He says, quote, we have no need to decide whether adherence to or a return to a 1982 framework is necessarily lawful under section. <laughs> I know. I I saw that too. I was like, this is crazy. <laughs> right. Because he's like, okay, he's we're like, gonna let's say let's not get into the legality of <laughs> Right. So like on the on the one hand, if if the law closely resembles to what we were doing in 1982, then it's probably okay. But on the other hand, we're not saying that if we were doing things exactly as they were done in 1982, that it would pass, that it would be lawful under Section 2. It, it's just, it's ridiculous doublespeak, and it's it's infuriating. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's an attempt to cover his ass right. and, like, try and make the logic coherent, you know, trying to sew the threads together, but it's just absurd. Right. Exactly. So the other thing I think, it, 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 you know, Alito claims to be an originalist, textualist, but it's like oh my God. The, the text of the statute. He just made up this test. Right, exactly. And the text of the statute doesn't, I don't think, can even support this consideration because like you were quoting earlier, the text says that no voting standard practice or procedure shall be imposed. So based mm-hmm. on that language, like, wh- where do you get that the comparison point is 1982? The comparison point has to be pre-imposition of the, of the regulation of the law. So if, if you're making it illegal to impose something, then you have to look at what the status is pre-imposition in order to determine the effect. So I don't think it even complies with the, the text of, of, of Section 2. I mean, I also think that it doesn't comply with the spirit of what the VRA was, because... 
And, and I think it's a really important point to note that this is all about historical framing because um, forget 1982. I mean, we should be talking about the 15th Amendment and how the VRA was supposed to be like the vehicle that finally allowed the promise of the 15th Amendment to come true. And uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> to act like the 15th Amendment had its promises had been fulfilled in 1982 is a cruel joke. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The court described the Arizona state interest in preventing election fraud as strong and legitimate. Would you agree with that? I I would say you got to prove it like it and it like. (laughs) No, exactly. And we need to talk about the real facts of what's happening in Arizona right now, too. Exactly. I'm going to and I I defer to you on on filling in some of those details. But, yeah, I think the state interest, I mean, it has to be legitimate. They have to, like, offer some evidence or proof. Um, I mean, you can imagine. Apart from Alito just saying so, which is what he did. He right. was like, mm, that is strong and legitimate. That's <laughs> right. Right. Without going into it. Right. And what, what's interesting is that he demands that when it comes, when it comes to the burden uh, or establishing the burden creating, created by the, the voting uh, legislation, he demands like, you know, exact proof uh, at one point. Uh, talking about um, the the ballot collection provision oh, says right. that the plaintiffs were unable to provide statistical evidence showing that HB 2023 had a disparate impact on minority voters. So on the one hand, he's like, okay, well, when we're talking about the burden, you have to bring some statistical evidence and you have to show proof. But when we're talking about the state interest, you get to just you know make something up without any proof that there's actually uh, fraud going on um, at the state level. Yeah, so to, to fill in those gaps about what's happening in Arizona, well, we'll have to take a little trip back to January 6th, the white supremacist insurrection at the Capitol, very much spearheaded by our lovely Arizona representatives, Andy Biggs and Paul Gazar. And um, they, ins- they insisted then and have continued to insist that the November 2020 election was fraudulent and have been, Maricopa County has been uh, involved in a quote-unquote audit where people are, until very recently, like until a month ago, people were hand-counting Maricopa County's ballots because of all of this. I know, so much resource, so many resources expended into this. And that's kind of the backstory that's really necessary here because that's why it's especially egregious for him to be like, oh, well, they said that they were trying to prevent election fraud. And that is very much a strong and legitimate interest. And it's like, when you say that, it's like, of course, Mm -hmm. but it's disingenuous to say that in a context where there's people who are still clinging to this conspiracy theory that Biden was wrongfully elected. Yep. And the, the, the only example I think offered in the opinion there's like only one example of of voter fraud and it's like from 2018 from North Carolina. It's like, if you can't even point to anything going on in the state in Arizona, the, you know, the, you know, where the the place that we're actually talking about, it it seems like totally, totally fabricated. Yeah. And that was actually, that was something that I talked about with the Pima County recorder is actually 
It's also especially egregious to be claiming that about Arizona's voting system because Arizona has had mail-in voting for years and years and years, whereas there were states in the November 2020 election who for the first time were allowing mail-in voting. And I could see how, like, it would have been smarter to make an argument about one of those states. It's just the facts on the ground do not match the conspiracy theory at all. I mean, not that facts matter anymore. I learned that a long time ago, but (laughs) let the record show. Uh, (laughs) Arizona's, there is, there is no fraud issue in in Arizona's voting system. And we should feel confident, especially in Arizona's mail-in voting system, because Mm -hmm. It's been in place for many years, and most of the voter, most of the state's voters, vote with mail-in voting. It is. It's. It's sort of striking how well all of this sort of fit together from their perspective. So you've got an unhinged president who's pissed off that he lost an election, making up conspiracy theories about voter fraud, mm-hmm. and then immediately, state legislatures just carrying that torch and saying, okay, great, like now that this is part of the national discourse and now that Trump has whipped up a frenzy among the Republican base or among Trumpists, uh, we can sort of use that momentum to pass these laws. And, you know, it's just, it's crazy how well all of that fit together. And it, you know, you can't, like if they, I, I, I doubt that 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 it was planned to, to work out that way. But if it had been, it couldn't have been, it couldn't have been executed more flawlessly. Yeah. Well, I think the the broader plan of fomenting distrust in our democracy is mm-hmm. was part and parcel of Trump's rhetoric and kind of what his effect was on politics. And I think that we're still feeling that because there are opportunist Republicans who are incredibly self-interested and are down to perpetuate that narrative, even Mm -hmm. if it's a wildly incorrect one and a dangerous one. So about the the ballot collection law, Alita was like trying to justify his opinion and said, no, 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 no. These legislators were not at all motivated by racial bias. I mean, maybe it was partisanship, mm-hmm. but that's not about race. But I wanted to ask you if we could dig into that a bit more, because can we even make that distinction now when ra- when voting is so racially polarized? So the first part of my answer is that the ans- the answer to this question is irrelevant to Section 2 because of the results in language. And and Kagan sort of addresses this, that, you know, liability does does not hinge on the motives of officials. It it rides on the the consequences, on the actual results Mm -hmm. of the law. So, like, regardless of whether it's motivated by partisanship or by racial animosity is, you know, to some extent irrelevant to the Section 2 analysis. So that's the first thing. I think, you know, theoretically, it might be possible to sort of separate partisanship and race. I mean, like voting is racially polarized, but it's not perfectly so. And there are, you know, yeah, definitely not. there are folks who, yeah, and then I think 2020 and in, in South Texas, unfortunately, you know, this really was borne out that, you yeah. know, there are uh, voters of color who do vote for Republicans. And obviously there are white folks who vote for Democrats. 
Um, I think mm-hmm. practically speaking, it's it's a lot more difficult. And I was, you know, in, in in preparation for our conversation, I was digging around. There's some some social psychology research on on how folks really tightly correlate race and partisanship, like to the extent that if you're un if you're like mm-hmm. in a in like an experimental design, if you are treated unfairly by a Democrat, participants take out that their their anger, or, you know, in in response to that, they take out that frustration on people of color. So if they find, if like, you know, you're splitting up money in this experiment, if you think a Democrat hasn't given you the amount of money you think you deserve in the experiment, then the next round, if you're up against a person of color, you're going to give them less money. So like the, the, the correlation in the minds of Americans between race and partisanship is extraordinarily Mm -hmm. tight. So you were getting into how Keegan was talking about how actually like the intent of politicians is irrelevant and we should just be looking at whether or not there's a disparate impact. And the majority court kind of went out of their way to say that the VRA is different than the disparate impact analysis that is used in Title VII and in Fair Housing Act cases. Mm-hmm. Who do you agree with? Well, I think, um, so uh, the majority, uh, you know, they they complain that if you require too tight of a fit between the state interests and the voting law, um, that would, you know, disrupt the balance between the courts and the states, and it would, you know, force the courts to regulate um, every um, voting law that a state passes. The thing is, that is exactly why the VRA was passed, because historically, Congress couldn't trust the states, you know, couldn't leave the states to their own devices. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's it's definitely right. Uh, you know, I think that the analogy to Title VII or the Fair Housing Act, uh, I think, is an appropriate one. Um, and then this, this sort of this sort of yeah. goes back to the to what I was mentioning earlier about the the disagreement between the majority and the dissent on on the role of statistics. I guess we can get into the statistics because with the I mean, and also I'm not a statistician. I'll say that. Yeah. But Arizona counties that reported out of precinct ballots in the 2016 general election constituted one percent of Latinx voters, one mm-hmm. percent of Black voters, one percent of Native American voters, mm-hmm. and and then for non-minority voters, the rate was 0.5 percent. Yeah. And so Alita was like, "That's not even significant." <laughs> right. But- well, he also <laughs> he also takes issue with with even using a like a st- statistically significant standard he says statistically significant disparity wherever that is in the statute and kind of has this little snippy remark in there but it's not i mean the, where is your test in the statute sir <laughs> exactly and second how else are you going to measure right i mean if if you're trying to if you're trying I to know it's like uh we're just going to guess <laughs> right exactly and that's apparently what alito wants right i mean if you're trying to measure opportunity, opportunity to participate in the, right. in the electoral process. I mean, Kagan proposing a standard where you measure whether or not the impact is statistically significant seems like a pretty good measure as opposed to Alito just sort of, you know, waving his hands around and saying, oh, I don't think the burden's very great. Yeah. And I, I just, I found his tone to be so chastising and preaching about how voting requires effort 
And it's not even that big of effort that's required. You just need to get in your car and drive there and wait in line. And that's it. And I just, I thought it was just a total disconnect from like what being a regular person who has to vote is like. Because he mentioned, oh yeah, there's an Arizona law that requires employers to give their employees time off to go vote. It's just like, dude, you are so disconnected from reality. It's like, yes, that is true. And employers mm-hmm. violate that regularly all the time. Because And people are too scared to like, actually exercise their right yep. because they could get fired arbitrarily. Because also we have the lowest participation rate in unions in, I think, ever. <laughs> yeah. And then also something that I pointed out with, I spoke with Kat Chutras mm-hmm. from the Arizona Advocacy Network. And we talked about how like the the obstacles that people who are in jail uh, face are just totally discounted from this analysis. It's actually quite difficult yeah. to exercise your right to vote if you... I don't, I don't think that's even mentioned anywhere. It's not. It's not at all. I know. And that's why it's just, it's another example of these like silver spoon justices being completely out of touch with what that everyday like voters experience is like. Yeah. I mean, they... I mean, here and in in probably every other opinion Alito has written, I mean, he centers the white, male, wealthy experience above all others. Um, and, you know, it doesn't, unfortunately, unless we get some more diversity on the Supreme Court, it, it seems like that is going to continue to be the, the lens through which they see everything. Yeah. I think, uh, well, I guess I'll say Kagan did a better job of kind of explaining what the on the ground situation is because she brought up the Tohono O'odham Reservation, which is the size of Connecticut. And actually, the Human County Recorder um, is an O'odham woman, and she has talked to me about how mm-hmm. there's just like a total dearth of services on the reservation. And like a lot of people end up actually just getting a P.O. box in town or like sending their mail out in town in Tucson because like the post office depending on where you live on the res like the post office in the res might be farther away than in town in Tucson and that that goes directly to like the the ballot collection scheme because I think there were some amicus briefs Mm -hmm. that talked about how it is standard practice for Native folks to give each other ballots to submit because of the remoteness of of the res. And it's a really good example of something that is facially neutral, but when actually applied to real people's lives does have a disproportionate impact on, in this case, Indigenous people. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And this is this is where the the guideposts, I think, are super misleading, right? Because what I think what Alito's response to that is, is that, well, they've got other other ways they can vote, right? They can vote. They've got, I think it, I think it's like 28 days or something that they can request uh, a ballot. They can vote early. Like there's other opportunities, Alito says. Um, but that, I mean, again, that, that, that violates, you know, that there's no basis for that kind of analysis in the text of, of section two. You know, section two is about the imposition of law. So if you're going to impose a new law, uh, saying that fo- that only certain fo- folks can collect your ballot, and that the consequence of that is that you have less of an opportunity to participate in the electoral process. It's a violation of Section Two. Um, so that again, this is you know eff- effectively Alito just writing new law um, and doing it in such a way 
that basically guarantees these kinds of laws will be upheld. Yeah, and he's just making up reality too. Like, in, like all this talk about vote buying schemes, it's like these are not actually yeah. real concerns in the voting rights world. There's absolutely no evidence of this fraud in Arizona, and I think it's important to keep mm. saying that <laughs> we hear the counter narrative yep. so often. I think it can become normalized, and I, you know, I think it can so yeah. doubt. Definitely. And we, I, I, something I, I say a lot is I think that we, that, that the left uh, Democrats, liberals, progressives need to get a lot better at the word game, need to get a lot better at rhetoric. Mm-hmm. I think one, I don't know that it made an appearance in the opinion itself, but oftentimes that the, the ballot collection laws are for the harvesting law. Which I think oh, is yeah. ballot harvesting. Yeah. Is that where that phrase comes from? Yeah, it makes okay. me think of like organ harvesting yeah. or like other sort of nefarious things. It just like has like a sort of ring to it. It like right. makes it sound like evil and nasty. It, Republicans are just really good at being able to to do that, put spins on things just by the the words that they choose. Yeah. Yeah. So one one quick note on the yeah. on the stats piece of this. So I think it's also important to note mm-hmm. that Arizona is a purple state and has yeah. pretty, at least yeah. at the national level, you know, there's pretty razor thin uh, margins in elections in 2020. Biden won the state by like 10,000 votes or a little over 10,000 votes. So <clears throat> the fact that Alito is using is saying like, okay, we have to look at, the size of the racial disparity that's created by these laws and then says, okay, well, diminishing the the number of ballots that are actually tossed out as a result um, of this law. But the impact of that is huge. Like even if it's a small number of ballots, Arizona's electoral votes are on the line. And then if you look, if you multiply that across the country, got a ton of really important states that are effectively in the same situation where you've got uh, a, perp- a, yeah. a state that is competitive or purple at on, on the national scale, but has Republican-controlled legislatures. We're talking about Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. Georgia, Florida. Yeah, I'm talking about Arizona. You know, all of these states have Republican-controlled legislatures, but are competitive in presidential elections. And so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. when you're able to, when, when those state legislatures are able to pass laws that effectively shave small percentages off of the vote for uh, Democrats by targeting uh, voters of color, uh, you're going to swing elections. So that is that that is the thing that is very frustrating about this like size of the disparity discussion and, and guidepost that Alito comes up with is that the impact, even even if you know you're able to even if you're you're able to describe uh, the numbers in such a way that they seem small in comparison to the number of folks that are still able to vote, you're you're really changing the outcome of elections by allowing these these laws to to uh, pass. And I think it's just important to remember that we're talking about a right, something that is supposed to be inherent to you and your being. And now we're yeah. like, or <laughs> you as a legal being, that is. <laughs> You're talking about the right to vote. Yeah. Well, one thing that's important to note, I think, is that we don't have a right to vote. 
What? We don't have a right to vote. Oh my God, this is a dictatorship. (laughs) We have a right to equal protection of the laws. So we have- Wait, no, the 15th, yeah. Right, so we have, we once- Wait, what? Once a state provides voting, like once the state says people can vote for things, then the state must- uh, extend that right equally to all citizens, but there is no. But Matt, what are you what are you saying? You're saying that like there is no constitutional right to vote. There's no there's there's no yeah. I mean, you can like at least so far as established by Supreme Court precedent precedent. There's no and within the text of the Constitution itself, there's no right to vote. I mean, we have a right. The, and the thing is, this has been. I think a provision in the constitution that talks about uh, like a, a representative form of government, right? But the Supreme court has deemed that non-justiciable. So technically mm. we don't. Wait, why is it non-justiciable? Uh, because it's, it, this is just what the Supreme court has sometimes says to, to escape its responsibility <laughs> to actually in, interpret the constitution. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like when they just like want to say like, ah, oh, we don't want to touch that. Like that's outside of our hands. Yeah. Like, you know, we're just going to leave that to the political process. Like if you think that like right. your government isn't actually a democracy or isn't actually a repub- uh, representative form of government, then like uh, it's on you guys, <laughs> you take to the streets or like go petition the government or something. Um, but yeah, technically, not- but like, isn't it, isn't the right to vote to vote implied in the 15th amendment protection of like that guarantees equal protection of the right to well, vote? Well, let's, let's pull up the, it's, it's implied is no, I mean, not, not like, I don't, I don't even, I'm not even saying it's written in that I'm saying it's implied because right. what would the situation yeah, so be the- if otherwise what you're saying that like states wouldn't have people vote on anything yeah yeah i mean so i mean it we've never no that's just theoretical it is theoretical but we've never encountered a situation in which a state has said okay no more voting nobody gets to vote we're just going to have like a state monarchy or something that situation hasn't been encountered before at that point you know maybe the supreme court would look to the 15th amendment and say okay well the fact that the 15th amendment says the right of citizens the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged, you know, implies the, the existence of such a right, but that has never been said. The only thing that's been said about the issue at the Supreme Court level is that is, is the equal protection argument, which is that once the mm-hmm. right is given by the states who are, you know, at least they, they're the, the states are the ones that are given the obligation to uh, administer uh, time, place, and manner of of elections. That once the states mm-hmm. provide that ro- that right to some, they have to provide it equally to all. I think it's wild that they haven't said that we have a right to vote. This is a farce. <laughs> all of it. Okay. Well, yeah. before we yeah. end, the last thing I wanted to yeah. talk about was just to clear the story of what the real backstory to HB twenty. 23 was which was the the one that made ballot collection a crime that was enacted after the increased use of ballot collection as a get out the vote mm-hmm. strategy and came on the heels of several prior efforts to restrict ballot collection so <laughs> that is the real backstory the voting crisis in Arizona is that the Arizona GOP is trying to take away your right to vote there is no widespread fraud apart from I think people being in office 
while also trying to stop people from voting because I feel like that's its own hypocrisy. But the oh, Kagan pointed out that if there's a history, particularly in Maricopa County, of shifting the polling places. So then like the place where people have to drop off the precinct where people have to drop off their ballot can change year by year. And then that results in increased mm. incorrect ballot drop off. I know at least here in Texas, I don't, it hasn't been an issue in, in, in San Antonio and Bear County that I'm aware of. I mean, but we are a fairly, you know, democratic, progressive uh, city. touched on how it's really consequential that Arizona is the only state that will completely throw out a ballot, including a presidential choice, if it's submitted at the wrong precinct. And it it did it's like wildly in first place in doing this, like 11 times yeah. more than the next state after Arizona. Wow. <sighs> I know. How, how are folks reacting? Like, did this make a splash locally? How are folks reacting to this on the ground? Are people like, I mean, you know, one of one of the hopes that I sometimes have with these kinds of things is that, like, when there is an attack, uh, that that fires people up to start getting involved in organizing and and fighting back. I'm wondering if you've seen any kind of response like that locally. I just think I have a skewed perspective because I've had Gabriela Casares Kelly, the Pima County recorder on, and I just spoke with Kat Dutras of the Arizona Advocacy Network. Like I'm talking Mm -hmm. to the people that are trying to get the word out about this. But Mm -hmm. I think the thing about Arizona is that there's so many attacks happening but from the GOP at once that it's hard to keep track of it all. You know, like right now I'm thinking about how Arizona's trying to use state money yeah. to build the border wall to like continue, you know, building the wall along Arizona's border and how Governor Ducey has asked outside state law enforcement to come to the border to quote unquote fix the border crisis. And like fucking 25 other wild ass things that have happened recently that I feel like is really easy for the right to vote to get proper airtime, especially because I think we only think about it every four years. I think like, I feel like people are all, and especially now the audit has died down, I think. And people just like, aren't really thinking about elections right now. I don't think, but hopefully that's not true. I mean, I would love to hear different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Have, have you, has there been any airtime or has it been on your, like the, the issues going on in Texas? Have, has that been on your radar at all with, uh, with the, with the the state Democrats are trying to do here? No, wait, what are they trying to do? So there, there was a bill introduced in the, the regular session of the Texas state legislature that the Democrats managed to kill. So our governor called a special session wow. to try and force it through. And the basically the, the Texas uh, Democratic caucus, in order to fight that, left the state and went to D.C. to try and, uh-huh. yeah, to try and raise uh, awareness, to try and get some media attention and to try and put pressure mm-hmm. on, uh, on the United States Congress to mm-hmm. pass a new voting rights bill. Um, and to dismantle the filibuster uh, in order to do so, but I, I guess I guess that the strategy is not really working too well if if uh, if folks if folks aren't talking about this or hearing about it. 
Well, I'm so heartened to hear that though. And now everybody listening to this will hear. Yeah, so yeah. I think that's an improvement from five minutes ago, we can say. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so yeah, so Texas, I mean, Texas is trying to do a lot of, I mean, well, specifically what's going on here, we have some really badass local electeds, specifically out in Harris County. Um, we have Lena Hidalgo, the county commissioner there who came up with some really amazing innovations um, to try and increase uh, voter participation uh, during the 2020 elections, and some of which were specifically addressed um, at trying to get people to vote despite the pandemic. So um, Harris County uh, pioneered 24-hour voting. Wow. Also uh, pioneered... That's really good. uh, Yeah. Also, uh, uh, in addition to 24-hour voting, drive-through voting. So people didn't have to get out of their, their cars and, you know, interact with Critical. strangers and that kind of exactly. thing. Exactly. That's exactly and, my vibe. And so, and so <laughs> the Texas legislature is trying to make both of those things uh, illegal uh, and trying to make it so if you vote, you have to vote inside of a building. So no more drive through voting, no more 24-hour voting. Like basically just going like uh, limiting the, the impact of all of these innovations and it also addressing mail-in voting, putting new voter ID requirements on mail-in voting. So, yeah, this this what's happening in Arizona is happening all over the country, and that is what is so scary about yeah. the, the impact of Brnovich. Yeah, exactly. Well, Matt, it's been like around an hour. Those are all the questions I wanted to ask. Was there anything that we didn't discuss about the decision that you wanted to discuss or about voting? I don't believe so. Okay, great. Oh, oh yeah. To sign off, what would you recommend for a cachimbona this week to inspire, to to sow a seed of hope, if you will? Um, a seed of hope. Well, yeah, it doesn't have to be a full-on plant. A seed is fine. <laughs> Definitely look into what the uh, Texas Democrats are doing. Um, we've got some really amazing elected officials here. Definitely follow Lena Hidalgo. She is a rising star here. Uh, like I said, has just done some amazing work in Harris County and Houston. And so I would I'd recommend that everybody go learn about her and follow her on social media. Cool. Wait, she's a judge? That's very interesting. We call we call our our count like the top executive official at the county level the oh. uh, a judge, but it's it, it's an executive position. It's not okay. a judicial position. That's, They're called the county judge, but it's the top executive. Of that's the county. very confusing. I suggest a title yeah. change. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Matt, for coming onto the podcast, and I hope to have you back on again soon. Awesome. Thank you so much. Bye.